Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. If you need the news, but also need to feel smarter and calmer, then you need to get in Andy Slavitt's bubble. Andy is a former White House advisor and Ultimate Outsiders insider. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Andy offers his access to leading experts. Join Andy for discussions on COVID, gun violence, climate change, and more. Now, I've been on this show a couple of times, and Andy is a friend of mine, and it really is a great show. In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt is available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. At the end of this episode, we have a conversation with Kyle Farrar. Kyle is one of the attorneys who represented the Sandy Hook families who just got to confront and get a large judgment against Alex Jones. And it's one of the very first interviews that Kyle has done post-judgment. Uh, and it's a great conversation. So definitely stick around for that. Robbie, how you doing? I'm good, man. You stole home Look, you, yesterday. You're such is a good correct? friend. I texted you last night about it. And you're like, <laughs> he obviously is going to want to talk about this. Want to hear about this. Uh, definitely a highlight life moment. I, I am reading this Ricky Henderson biography right now. And I, Oh, that's right. I remember that I didn't put this all together. You had put on Instagram last week. that This is why you're stealing bases. I, for those who are listening, Ricky Henderson has stolen more bases than anybody in major league history, I believe. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. To get this right, you're reading this book and you're just now trying to steal every base you possibly can. Well, now. I've always right? like, I'm, I'm definitely not a power guy. So it's obviously always, you know, speed has always been a part of my game because it's kind of, you know, there's five tools in baseball. I have three, you know, so I, I, I try and. What are these five tools? Oh, well, you, you, you can hit for average, meaning you get a lot of hits, uh, you know, a decent amount of hits. You can have speed, you can have a strong arm. Uh, you know, power and then, and then defense, like, you know, you play good got defense. I, I play pretty good defense. Uh, I have a very weak arm anymore because it just got destroyed, you know, pitching in high school. I don't pitch anymore. Uh, I have speed. I don't hit for power. I do hit for average. So a three out of five, Got it. you know, age adjusted to 41 in an adult men's baseball league. Right. So whatever, you know, so stealing base is always part of my game, but like, I don't know what it was, man. I'm reading this and it's all about Ricky just taking over the league, taking over games. And I'm not saying I'm going to do that. But yesterday I went to my game and I, before I left, I said to Diana, I was like, I just am so into this. I'm, I'm taking over this game like Ricky Henderson. So I go out there, oh my God. I get a couple hits, I steal three bases. But the best part was in high school, I was on a prospect team. I was not a prospect. I was just good enough to make the team, not good enough to be anybody the scouts had any interest in. But I was a runner on third in one game and the pitcher was really slow to the plate and my coach was like, steal home. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to, which stealing home for people who don't want to follow baseball, you are, when you look at everybody who's played baseball, anybody who's been a baseball player, if you ask them, if you ever stole home, I would say they are less likely to say yes to that than a golfer is to say, yeah, I've had a hole in one. Like it's extremely rare. Yeah, because the pitcher is so used to pitching to the catcher in that position that it's the fastest motion on the field, right? Well, so it's, it's like, like any other base, if you got to steal it, you get to start running when the pitcher's pitching and then the catcher has to throw to that base. You're running to a base, the ball's already there. And, right. And so, uh, so anyway, I went to steal home in high school in this game, and I halfway down the line, this thought hit me. I was like, had a good break. I was going to steal home. I was going to get to brag about it for the rest of my life. And... I, this thought hits me, and it is, wait, the batter doesn't know I'm stealing home. What if he swings? I'm going to get killed. And I, and, it's, and I hesitated, which I shouldn't have. I hesitated. I got stuck. They threw me out, and, it was, and it's bothered me ever since. So last night, we're in the uh, top of the last inning. We're down by a run. There's two outs. We have to score a run to keep the game going, or the game's going to end. Like It's going to be the end of the game. We're going to lose by one. And 
the guy coaching third, my buddy Marty, is like, hey, the catcher is really lobbing the ball back to the pitcher. How do your legs feel? And I'd already stolen a couple of bases in the game. I was like, my legs feel good. He's like, if you think you can make it, go. So I, I get like way down the line. The catcher acts like he's going to throw me out at third. And I like kind of act like I'm going back. He turns, goes to lob the ball back to the pitcher, and I take off. So it's like a delayed steal. Catch, pitcher gra- catches the ball, throws it as fast as he can back to the catcher, and I slide in under. Stole home to tie the game. It was like oh my God. amazing. I almost woke True up. I almost came home and woke up True to tell him, but I waited till the morning. And he was like, What happened? Did you guys win? We that yeah, that's what sucks is the next inning we lost in a walk off. But oh, at least you got your, your yeah. I got to exercise that demon, and uh, anyway, big moment for me wow. on the Kansas City Hustlers. It was very fun. Wow, we're gonna skip over the talking trash this week because we have a lot of trash to talk about Alex Jones at the end of the episode. And because I talked str- for like ever about a, a men's baseball game, <laughs> so I think that. That's better than uh, better than the trash talking we normally do. <laughs> I, I need to know what's the name of the other team you played. Uh, the Cardinals. Cardinals. Great yeah, we'll talk trash about them. Group of fellas. F <laughs> those Cardinals. They beat us, uh, so. But okay, let's talk about the breaking news of the week. We are recording this on Tuesday afternoon, so I'm sure there will be much breaking news between now and when we put this up. But FBI agents uh, executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Trump's house in Palm Beach, Florida, and the access is safe on the premises. Trump was not there, uh, but he was tweeting out, I think, after this happened. And or, or what do you looks, call it? He was truth socialing. Truth socialing. That's right. Yeah. He was it wasn't truthing. Tweeting. He was truthing it out. He was truthing or issued some kind of press statement or whatever. And it seems like there are uh, reports are the FBI has not put out a statement as of now. Neither is the Department of Justice, but sources seem to be telling the media that this is about classified documents that the former president has uh, and that there's some kind of back and forth that has been going on between the former president's lawyers and the Department of Justice over documents he took with him to Mar-a-Lago. And so it seems like this was about improper handling of classified documents, and we're not sure how much more is going on here. Jason, what were your immediate thoughts in seeing this? The first thing I thought of was this experience that I had when I was in Afghanistan. So I was an intelligence officer, which meant that, you know, at times I I handled classified materials. And this one little task that I had was I liaised with some uh, Afghan intelligence officers. And what it was is it was like I would go to them with some uh, written up intelligence reports that we had deemed, you know, like at a level where we could uh, share them with the our Afghan counterparts and then they would share stuff with us. It was just a routine task I did every day. And in doing it, I had to carry uh, this like folder that was like, it was a zip shut folder. And then inside there was a red folder that said top secret on it. And then inside there was some just short paragraphs written about some incident reports that we had seen. So it was all, it was top secret material. So I had to go and I had to bring it to them, let them copy it down because you wouldn't leave it with them. And then I would bring it back. And then I'd go on with the rest of what I did over there. Well, I remember one day I was coming in uh, into our little base, our little camp. And when you when you enter a uh, little army post like that overseas, a little military post, you have to go to the clearing barrel, which is like you point your weapon. In my case, I had a couple of them. So you, you point a couple of weapons into the barrel, pull the trigger to demonstrate that you have pulled the magazine and the, and the round out of your weapon so that you're going on post and you're not in danger of accidentally shooting somebody. It's the clearing barrel. Well, in doing that, like, it's just, you know, it's difficult. You have to put a lot of stuff down, pick a lot of stuff up. And I, so I did it. And then I get about maybe a hundred steps past it. And I look down and I realize I had set down the folder when I did it and I hadn't picked it back up. And I turn around and I sprinted back to the gate and thank God the folder was still there. And the whole time I was sprinting, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to go to prison because... I'm just being absent-minded, and I forgot to pick up these pieces of paper. I mentioned that to say, carrying top-secret materials is a big damn deal, right? To the point where I, a second lieutenant in Afghanistan, was like, I'm going to spend time in prison if I don't get these documents before somebody else just happens to pick them up, and maybe even just throw them in the trash, but if I can't account for them, right? Uh, now, I probably wouldn't have gone to prison, but like in my mind, I'm w- going to the worst possible outcome. 
So there are people who have gone to jail, just to be clear. Oh, for I, I sure. Do, you know this, like, uh, and have gotten reprimanded. Samuel Berger, the former national security advisor to Bill Clinton, pled guilty in 2015 to misdemeanor charges for removing classified material from the archives. There's a guy named Donald Kaiser, an Asia expert at the State Department, who was sentenced to prison after he was confessed to keeping a bunch of classified documents. So this this does happen. And, yeah, and you it, wouldn't have, I doubt well, it, in your circumstances. But you know what it yeah. would have happened is I would have lost my security clearance. And if I right. and, and as an intelligence officer, that's your career. Like you lose your security clearance, you're done. And yeah, I used to have this experience when I was with Susan Rice. I had the top secret SCI. And you have to go through to get into the uh US mission, you have to go through many layers of security, past security guards, codes, yada, 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 to the point where you're like in the ambassador's office. I used to have a couple of safes I used to keep stuff in there. If I accidentally did not lock a safe after all of those layers of security, I used to have to have meetings with our SRO, like the security officer at the embassy. Uh, and you, I think it was like three, if you do it three times or something, then you lose your clearance or something. So I, I'm making up that number. I don't know how many it was, but it was a lot. And so there, I remember like distinctly just how seriously they take this stuff. Yeah. So just for people listening, like you're going to have people tell you like it's over paper. Like, no, no. Okay. The level of, you know, classified document that got to you at the, at the UN or me at Camp Eggers in Kabul. Versus the level that gets to the Oval Office, like what it says in those documents. Yeah, it's a big damn deal that that is just sitting around at a retired person's, you know, house on a golf course in Florida. Yeah, it could, you know, for example, uh, have information about who uh, is providing information to the United States government, like, you know, overseas uh, assets. Sources and methods. put in harm's way. Yeah. So this is a big deal. Uh, worth keeping in mind that the FBI director is Christopher Wray, who is appointed by Donald Trump. And so when you hear all of this whining from the right about this, about this being some kind of political witch hunt, it's worth mentioning that the guy who executed this was Trump's handpicked FBI director. Uh, all reports seem to indicate as of today that Biden, the Biden White House had no idea about this. It's very possible that Merrick Garland did because the Department of Justice oversees the FBI. So that seems likely. I think the big speculation here is why they did this. Now, my sense is there's a couple of things that could be going on here. One could be they just wanted the documents. They didn't even want to charge him, and they may decide not to charge him. And they're just like, look, we just need to get these documents back uh, because he's compromising national security. And they could be like, look, like given he is the former president and he's he's running against Biden again, we're going to decline to prosecute, even though if he was, say, the National Security Advisor, we would. And I think we could argue about whether that's right or wrong, but it could be that they just want these documents. I'm not sure that's what's going on here, but that's one option. I think another option is that there's something in these documents that either is embarrassing to Trump, which is why he wants to hold on to them, or he's using this information for some kind of purpose, like whether it's to you know, leverage it against some kind of, you know, for political reasons or use it um, in some kind of negotiations with foreign governments or something. I'm, I'm not, I'm speculating here fully. I have no idea. And then the third option is that this is part of some larger conspiracy, right? That we have no idea about, right? Like that something about the way he's using classified material and holding onto it, it belies some kind of large conspiracy. The reporting did indicate just in the past hour that this is unrelated to the January 6th stuff, at least according to reporting by the New York Times. It's a totally separate investigation. I'm very curious as to what this is because Merrick Garland is not a very aggressive guy when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I'm really curious as to what is really going on behind the scenes here. So a couple of things about this. I think, one, and I had forgotten about this, but I just read about it in an article on CNN that refreshed my memory that, you know, there's a, a, a policy. Obviously, this was not abided by in the 2016 election, but there's a policy at the at the FBI of not doing things like this within 90 days of an election um, in order to avoid you know, anything high profile and something like this influencing an election. And that if you count back, uh, I think this was done at like 91 or 92 days. And so part of it is just, you know, if you think that you're going to need to do this in the next few months, you got to do it now or you're, you're going to run afoul of that. That's policy. a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Which means we may not hear from them again until after the election. Right. And then the other thing for me to think about here is like, you know, Trump is not a guy who seemed to, I don't know, take his work home with him. 
And this is literally what he's done here. And so <laughs> I, I think you got to have a lot of concern about what is in classified documents that Donald Trump was like, I'm going to need that. Doesn't seem like a guy who keeps a lot of souvenirs, but this sounds like it's a lot of stuff. It's it's documentation, right? I mean, look, you can't not be concerned about a guy who has been willing to invite other nations to collaborate with him on domestic politics. He can't go having stuff about the way the United States conducts intelligence collection or intelligence operations, if that's what it is, or anything else that he could offer to another country. And at some point, you got to say, like, hey, um, it's not like presidents pass a background check. They don't get a TSSCI. They don't go through that. They just get it because they got elected. And and so, you know, at some point, you got to protect the country. Yeah, I think it's safe to say he would not have passed the background check. So there's this guy named Ken White, no Trump fan, who's a criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor, and this is what he said. Uh, just to put a little cold water on this, although I, I, I do I do take this seriously. He says, it's rather surprising to me that the misappropriated documents, even if classified, would get DOJ to execute a warrant. Not what I expect to find adequate to do something this big. Either this is the greatest overplayed hand ever, or this is something very dramatic and we don't know about it. And he went on to talk about how the president has the power to declassify any document at any time. Now, Trump is not the president anymore, worth mentioning. But what he's saying is, look, I think there's more here. I think I agree with him if they charge Trump. If I think if they don't charge Trump, I think it was literally just them saying, look, we want to set we don't want to set a precedence that people could take uh dangerous documents home with them and we needed to get those back to protect the security of the United States. I think if they charge him, there's gonna be more going on here, knowing what I know about uh Merrick Garland. Well, one last thing about this is that I, I also read that when they when they first come came down investigators first came down to say hey we'd, we'd like to talk a little bit about these documents that we think you took this is like a year ago or whatever now that trump was there he wasn't there for this search but he was there at that time and that he apparently politician that he is stopped in and said hello didn't answer questions about the documents but i guess at least twice during their visit stopped in and was friendly and said hello which means it's not like Trump was completely unaware. I mean, heck, that was reported at the time. It's not as if he was totally unaware that they were interested in these documents. Apparently, you know, while they were there for that visit, they asked, can we see where the documents are kept? They were taken to the place where the documents were kept. They asked a lot of questions. They didn't take any documents that day. So they came back to get the documents. My point is, is that Trump setting the five alarm fire uh, through his uh, post, to me, feels like Trump is going, okay, I'm using this to my advantage. I'm going to, he wants to make it seem like this is related to January 6th stuff. This is, you know, he wants to, as he always does, play the victim. So while he seemed to have been cooperative with them when they visited, now that this search actually happened, I don't know if it's he's freaked out because there's stuff in there that's really damaging or if he's like, all right, well, I'm just going to make this something that I can use to fire up my people. Yeah, he's already fundraising off of it. The Neil Katyal, the former Solicitor General of the United States, he went on TV and made an interesting point where he said one person could clear this up, and that's Donald Trump. He's got a copy of the warrant. He could post it like he posted his truther or whatever, his truthy or whatever we call those things. He could just post a copy of this warrant. The warrant probably has some details about what they were looking for. So, you know, he holds the keys. I doubt the FBI is going to post that. Well, let's celebrate the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, most of what we talked about last week that was in the bill remains. Uh, there are two notable things about this bill worth mentioning to update from last week. So one major debate that played out as this bill was passing was over the price of insulin because of weird procedural stuff I won't go into. The provision to cap the price of insulin required 60 votes. and uh, they didn't get enough Republican votes. I think they got seven Republican votes, but not enough to pass this. And so insulin is going to continue to be priced at an exorbitant level. I think it's something like $1,200 a month for some people around this country, even though it only takes a few dollars to manufacture. There are only three companies that manufacture and sell it, so they basically operate like a monopoly and raise prices in tandem. Uh you know, Dan Pfeiffer tweeted, put this in every ad. 
uh, and I think I, I think by and large everybody accepts that this was poor politics and policy and morals from the GOP. Something that I think we're going to hear a lot about between now and November. So a lot of people I've seen people on my social media saying, but I don't understand why would they be you know against this cap and. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing it has a lot to do with companies that provide insulin, make a lot of money, and they don't want it capped, and there are people who will carry that water in Congress. Is it that simple? I think it's a combination of that and this, I'm going to punish the Democrats for using reconciliation. Uh, Notably, your home state senator, Josh Hawley, did vote for this. I think he's one of the few GOP senators, the difference between him and Cruz, I think, is how committed he is to this populist bit that he's in right now. But at least if there were just more of them, we've got to gotten this past. I think there was a McConnell call that was like, look, we're going to punish them. We don't want to give Biden another victory. I mean, just the sheer amount of Biden victories lately are, are pretty staggering when you think about the CHIPS Act, which we haven't even talked about. You know, there's just so much happening right now. So I think they're like, all right, let's not hand him a victory. I think inadvertently this was they stepped in it because now they have their own centers, including people like Ron Johnson, who's up for re-election, who now are going to be having to answer to the public. And there's a lot of people who take insulin. 8.4 million Americans take insulin. So if you take the people who take insulin and then the people who are their family members, and then just those of us who give a shit about people, even if we don't know them personally, it's a lot of people who will care about this. One change to this bill that I think does seem to have a little something to do with people contributing money is uh, Kirsten Cinema's late minute edits to this bill. I would take a step back and say, all right, we were we were worried about what she was going to do. In the end, I think all of us, I can't remember if I said it on this podcast or not, I think it was pretty clear she was going to come around on something, but she was going to ask for something. Mm-hmm. And there's this parlor game in D.C. about who is Kirsten Cinema. And if she were a Kardashian or something, like, is she going to stay with Pete Davidson or whatever? That would be cute and interesting. But this is a U.S. <laughs> senator who's answerable to voters. And the idea that she uh, is not even the least bit transparent about really important policy before and after these types of votes really pisses me off. And what she asked for here and got, in the end, this is a great piece of legislation, but is really telling. So they removed a provision in the bill to close what's referred to as the carried interest loophole. This is a benefit to private equity and real estate firms, which allows them to pay lower tax rates on the profits from their investments. They're literally the only types of people who benefit from this, rich people. Democrats added in a 1% excise tax on most stock buybacks to replace that provision because they needed the revenue. Good. And I can get into, if, if, if you want, like why stock buybacks are a really important area of policy. I actually really like this provision that they added. But she also tinkered with the minimum corporate tax also to protect private equity. Whereas before it was like there's this $1 billion in profits cap uh, or uh, trigger to say this is what triggers the minimum corporate tax. It had basically also included language that if you're a private equity entity where each little company that you have might not be a billion, but if you roll it all up into a big private equity company and it's over a billion, then you're subject to this tax. She fought for and got that language taken out that applied to private equity companies. So you ask yourself, like, what the hell? Like, there's not a lot of private equity in Arizona. Uh, What is going on here? Although that was part of her defense, right? She was like, I want to protect investment in Arizona. Right. Yeah, okay. But she did get a lot of donations from private equity. So... To me, this is just terrible stuff. The bill is great. In the end, it's still great. The stock buyback stuff is great. But I do have serious questions about our uh, our senior senator, I guess she is, from Arizona. Like, what's going on with Kirsten Cinema? I think it's one of two things. I think at this point she sees the writing on the wall, and she knows that our friend and friend of the show, Ruben Gallego, is if she's going to actually run as a Democrat, which I can't imagine uh, for re-election, he's going to clean her clock in the primary. And then she's going, okay, well, I'm going to run as an independent, so it doesn't really matter. In that case, it's like I may as well go after these you know, contributions from private equity. So that could be a strategy because I think she's a very strategic person as far as that goes. But I think the other just as likely, if not more likely possibility, is she goes, yeah, I'm not going to get re-elected to the Senate. 
But you know what? You're gonna go work in private equity. Yeah, but you know w- what is private equity at the end of the day? It's having a platform to where you can go in and you can uh, raise money from major, major investors. And if you've got experience in government and you want to work in the in the private equity sector where you're doing raises for things that are going to be government contractors and that kind of thing, well, that's certainly very valuable. So I think one way or the other, this is either her playing to her strength politically and and running the lane that she thinks she can run, or it is her setting herself up for, as John Stewart put it about to me a couple of weeks ago, her pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. And either way, man, it's super disappointing. And you're right. I'm tired of saying how disappointed I am in some of these people who I used to know. Yeah. And she's, you know, people call her moderate, but I'm like, you know what? Like there are a lot of moderates out there. Moderate is not sellout, right? Like a moderate John Tester. You know, like right. a moderate is somebody who, yeah, hey, like I'm, you know, I, I want a reasonable tax rate. I'm a little bit more skeptical of regulation than the next or whatever, but there's principled moderates. I don't know what she is, but she's not principled she's in whatever an she is. The point is, is that all of the good stuff that was done here, and it is substantial, is stuff that the Republicans all voted against. I right. mean, it's a, it's a, you talk about, you know, three months out from the midterms, like a very clear depiction of the difference. Look, I'll be honest. There have been plenty of times on this show over the last, however it's been long that we've been in like a midterm cycle, that I struggle to come up with stuff to get excited about, right? right. And I don't just mean stuff to get excited about in terms of, uh, what you can talk about running up to the election. I mean, like, just stuff to get excited about. You know, it's hard. It's a 50-50 split, and two of the Democrats are pretty 50-50 themselves. So it's really hard <laughs> to get stuff done. And honestly, you know, my personal experience on the Afghan evacuation stuff with the Biden administration, while it is a thousand times better than it would have been had it been the Trump administration, uh, you know, I've struggled with them a little bit at times, and it has affected my enthusiasm. I'm enthusiastic about this. This is like good things happened for America and for Americans. I mean, my friend Brian Schatz, you know, uh, was in tears about the what this means in terms of climate. I mean, you know, Brian is a. This is like the cause of his life, and so this is real. And man, this is pretty cool. It's the kind of thing where. If God forbid we, you know, uh, we we really don't do well at all in the midterms, and well, this is something where it made people's lives better, and it will it will be very important. Yeah, I think it's important to just stop. I know our audience has heard a lot of doom and gloom here. We try not to be as doomish and gloomish as as others, or even how sometimes I often feel in my heart. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, right. but this is, but, but you know, let's just take a step back here. Gun legislation, microchips, veterans benefits, the Re- Inflation Reduction Act, which you know obviously is kind of a misnomer in many ways. It's it reduces deficit, invests in climate, you know, extends the ACA, decreases the price of drugs. Um, you know, you got all this stuff going on at the same time that we had the Kansas vote. We've got like the bad. There's obviously a lot of bad news about what Republicans are doing, but it's been clarifying for the voters and for the first time since November. You have Democrats in the 538 uh, model, uh, generic congressional vote, getting over uh, the Republican uh, share of the vote. This Which week. is now, this huge. Could easily, yeah, and obviously the, the tide could turn. We know like what that those days of the Afghanistan uh, mess were and how like Biden dropped like a stone. So obviously this could go in any direction really fast. But the trends are significant and the substance behind it is significant. Both the stuff that we're passing is really good and the stuff that the Republicans are doing are so bad and clarifying that even a, frankly, super-duper unpopular president in Joe Biden is not doesn't seem to be enough for the Republicans to put this thing away. Jason, we're in this fitness group. I think we've basically created a movement among these people to take athletic greens. I'm seeing photos in our chat every day of people finding creative mixtures. Honestly, like we could have our own food network show just with athletic greens based uh, been, beverages. I've been thinking, I, I really hope everybody in our fitness group 
is using athleticgreens.com slash majority. I mean, because it's like a, we're moving well, a I lot did of product. To it. Well, look, to make it easy for you, you listeners to this show, who is who are you if you haven't already gotten Athletic Greens AG1? Like, what are you doing? You listen to this show every week. Come on. Like, I know what you're thinking. You're going like, I think they're thinking we're liars. That's what I'm yeah. thinking. I don't know why they listen. Yeah. And, they're, if they, and if they think we're liars. Oh, and maybe they're going like, well, I'm not like a fitness person. Like you don't know. You don't have to be that. Like it's just good for you. So to make I it easy, I would say it's more important for the non-fitness. I person. agree. More right. important. Yeah. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com/majority. Again, that is athleticgreens.com/majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll enjoy, When the People Decide. Conversations about democracy in the U.S. typically focus on political parties and candidates, but there's a whole other world of everyday people who take issues they care about directly to their fellow voters to create political change and form new coalitions. When the People Decide brings you their inspiring stories. You'll hear from Katie Faye, who led a campaign to change the redistricting process in Michigan, Desmond Mead, who started a cross-partisan movement to restore voting rights in Florida. By the way, both of those people have been on this show as well, so obviously they have great tastes in guests. Or Luke Mayville, who rallied voters in Idaho to expand Medicaid. When the People Decide is supported by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and produced by LWC Studios. Subscribe wherever you're listening right now. For Grab an Oar slash Road to the Midterms, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you are familiar with our friend Adrian Fontes, who is the former county recorder in Maricopa County uh, in Arizona, crucial county. But right now, as of just a couple of days ago, he was, you know, finally like the AP called it. He is the Democratic nominee for Secretary of State of Arizona in an election that is happening this November. He is running against this fella, Fincham, who is an insurrectionist who is all about the big lie. So if I let me let me make this really clear for folks. Remember how a couple of years ago the whole thing it turned out like whether or not we held our democracy together swung on whether or not the election administrators in Arizona would actually tell the truth about what happened. Katie Hobbs, who's now running for governor, is the secretary of state of Arizona. If Katie Hobbs had not been the secretary of state, I don't know what kind of hellscape would be going on outside my window right now. So this is like a big deal. It's not just like, oh, there wouldn't be a pro-democracy person in the Secretary of State's office in Arizona. There would be a dude who was like there on January 6th in charge of election administration in what is probably tied with what, like Georgia, Michigan, and Pennsylvania for, you know, those are the four most important states right now when it comes to actually them doing their job in election administration for 2024. So, you're going to want to probably uh, support our friend Adrian Fontes. If you're interested, go back and listen to the episode with Adrian because what's really interesting about that episode is he had just very narrowly lost his reelection for Maricopa County Recorder, which was the person in charge of elections in Maricopa County. And the whole interview was about how he was like, yeah, it was close, but I lost. And this is important in democracy. I'm a Marine and I'm not going to say that I didn't lose. That's the kind of guy you want in charge of the elections in Arizona. Long plug, but go check out Adrian Fontes and, and throw him some support. The other day, uh, I was tweeting a bit about how much I was enjoying watching the attorneys for the Sandy Hook families really take apart Alex Jones and how it was like the first thing in a really long time that made me sort of for a moment kind of miss being a trial lawyer. It was fleeting, but I felt it. And my friend Brett Emerson, a fellow trial attorney, I guess I'm a recovering trial attorney, but he's still a trial attorney, texted me and was like, hey, I'm friends with one of those lawyers, with Kyle Farrar. Would you like to talk to him? I was like, absolutely. I'd love to have him on the show. And that's what we're about to do, which is really exciting. Kyle Farrar uses his powers for good. He's a lawyer who takes on some of the biggest companies from the auto industry, medical device industry, to Alex Jones and InfoWars to protect and help the people that they have actually hurt. And this is one of his first interviews uh, since the judgment actually came down. Kyle, thanks for being here. Well, Kyle, I wanted to just start with a question of just who is Alex Jones and what did he say uh, about the mass shooting in Sandy Hook that even got us to this place where he's hauled in front of a court and subject to a major ruling like we got this past week. So Alex Jones is 
a longtime conspiracy theorist uh, who hosts a radio show that's it's televised, so it's kind of a TV slash radio show. Um, but he's got a huge, huge audience. Millions and millions of people tune into him every day. He puts out eight to nine hours of content every single day, uh, mostly with the goal of selling supplements that he puts on his website. Really where he exploded was in 2012 with the Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings. He developed a conspiracy theory that it was all a hoax, a false flag, uh, and it never happened. Um, so he, he went on kind of years and years and years, and he had these weird sort of conspiracy theories as to why and, and facts as to why. So that sort of forms a lot of the claim. Uh, he did specifically target Neil Heslin. Um, and Neil was on the Megyn Kelly show in 2017, and he went on the Megyn Kelly show to try to get Alex Jones to be quiet about this and, and to prove that he did have a kid. And in his interview with Megyn Kelly, he said, Jesse died and I held him in my arms with a hole in his head. Alex Jones came out a week after that and said that couldn't ever happen. Uh, and he edited some clips from the medical examiner and from another interview of the McDonald family uh, to make it look like none of the parents ever saw their kids after they were shot that day, which is obviously absurd. Um, so that that's, that is the background as to how we got there was his years of lies about Sandy Hook and then specifically in 2017 uh, targeting Neil Heslin. And there were clearly a lot of people who, who bought into this, you, you know, and, and it, there's people who bought into this without, you know, ever acting out on it toward the families or anything like that. I mean, there's people who we don't know about who are like, well, you know, maybe that wasn't real. And I was just wondering if this experience has imbued you with any sort of guesstimation or theory as to why people are inclined to this sort of thing. I just to preview, like, I tend to feel like we have a little bit of a national avoidance of trauma when it comes to these mass shootings anyway. It, I don't know if that was your experience here or not. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, when we started normalizing the term al alternative facts, that sort of becomes an issue. And I, you know, and I think that Alex Jones is one of the main reasons that we've normalized that term is if there's multiple sets of facts um, as opposed to you know, different viewpoints of a set of facts. Um, you know, it, to your point, a lot of people did buy into this. We had an expert testify, um, Becca Lewis from Stanford, who's fantastic and smart and just brilliant. And she's an expert on misinformation. Uh, and she looked at a study that said 24% of Americans believe either Sandy Hook didn't happen or have questions about the sort of official narrative. Th that's staggering. I mean, one in four Americans think that, there's something fishy going on at Sandy Hook. And Kyle, given this is America, we have the First Amendment, my sense is it's not easy to bring these kind of claims because in this country, there's a whole lot you can say that's false that you can get, a, get away with. What I know that Jones didn't help himself in the initial phases of this trial by not cooperating, so we never really got that true test of the facts of Jones in front of a jury because he... You correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like he didn't really. He made it easy in the first round for you guys. But the look on Kyle's face, Kyle, Kyle's <laughs> like, man, none of this was easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think you know what I'm easy talking. stuff. Yeah, um, but we never got that to that point because he didn't cooperate. What if if he had? Uh, what is it about the facts of this case that cross that line? Like, what is the law right now? Is it? Is it? as it relates to these types of matters? Well, you, you can't say statements of fact that are incorrect, that are lies, that are just not accurate um, if, if it injures people. You know, one of the sort of themes that we had in trial, and you heard it maybe multiple times, was um, speech is free, but you have to pay for your lies. So that's still the case. I mean, defamation law goes back to the 1500s in, in England. So we've always had defamation law. So it's one thing to sort of comment or give opinions about things. When you're saying things as fact, like it is impossible that he held his dead child, you're calling him a crisis actor. Because so, so the interesting thing, if you think about that one statement that he didn't hold his child, what they're not saying is that Neil lied about holding his child. They're not saying his child died and it, he's just, it, he just didn't hold him. What they're saying is he's a crisis actor who messed up his lines, right? That his son never died that he never had a son that even went to Sandy Hook. 
and he messed up his lines. And this is their gotcha moment that, oh, we caught one of the actors screwing up his lines. And that's proof that Sandy Hook never happened. So what happens when you do that kind of thing is you get, you radicalize people who are believers. And there's testimony that he had his house and car shot up, um, confronted on the streets a lot, confronted by email a lot. And that starts to wear people down uh, and make them really, really scared. So and the, the line really is these statements of facts that are that are not accurate. And so what was this like courtroom spectacle? Like, I think for a lot of us watching, it almost seemed like like it was like people acting out a trial, especially Jones, like his his mannerisms in the courtroom were so strange. The judge seemed so frustrated with him by the end of it. I was struck by just how tense the judge was with him and how frustrated she had gotten with his lies by the end of this trial. Well, there's, there's definitely his lies, but really the whole show. Um, he would, when he was on the stand, it was like he was doing a show. I mean, he one time launched into an inf- infomercial where he was selling his product on the stand. It was, it was crazy to watch because it, it's clearly something deep within him. I mean, it's not even to say it's second nature. It just comes out at him and he just starts s- saying it. But I mean, that's how he walked in and out of the courtroom. I'm sure if you're paying attention, you'd notice it's not normal for people, especially what we call in front of the well, which is, you know, not not in the gallery, but where the counsel table are to walk in and out during witnesses testimony. That's really, really rare. I mean, unless you're, you know, about to go puke, nobody does that. And he's doing it with three monster bodyguards that he's walking around all over the place with. He's huffing and puffing he's talking to his lawyer and i guess the guy just can't whisper because he's sort of you know yelling at his lawyer um the whole thing was sort of a spectacle and it just it sort of screamed to me that he is always on his show he's never taken a moment off and he attacked the judge right on his show during this trial is that right <laughs> i mean if you consider putting a picture of her with on fire as attacking yeah he did so we had, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the podcast Knowledge Fights. It's sort of a spoof of InfoWars. And a lot of watchers were really involved in, in watching this trial. So we went to the, their Reddit page and we had some of their listeners watching his show while we were in trial, trying to pick out things. And we sort of gave them things we were looking for. Like, hey, look, if they're talking about the judge, if they're talking about the jury or us, we really need to know that. We were kind of using our, our resources as best we could to find these clips that we could use. But yeah, I mean, he was saying crazy things about the judge that she was wrapped up in pedophilia. I mean, the, the picture we actually introduced into evidence of her on fire. Uh, they said the jury was handpicked from blue collar areas where they don't know what planet they're on. Always good to insult the jury. Always a good strategy. I imagine that doesn't get in front of the jury, right? Like It did. Oh, it really? absolutely did. So oh, the wow. reason, the way we got it in, I mean, I, right, I would think, you know, normally that wouldn't come in. The, the way we got that stuff in in this case is Jones or one of his people kept saying, he said he's sorry, he really feels bad, he feels terrible about this. And it proves that's a bunch <laughs> so of BS was, was, when he's calling the jury. It was impeachment evidence to his testimony. It's crazy. Yeah, no, it, it's crazy. So, he, you know, he kept saying that, and he had... Uh, Owen Schroyer and uh, Ms. Karpova on the stand, who both said the same thing, that, hey, we've really, we've really changed the way we do things. Well, we found a, an email from Paul Watson that got, ended up getting into evidence or text messages. This is one of the treasure trove of text messages that came to us the week before trial uh, that weren't, weren't Wait, supposed to be sent to us. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah let's talk yeah, about I'd that. I'd like to know what that moment around the office was like. Yeah. Was there like high well, fives going on around your just office? Just like a lot of like, shock first? Like what, what yeah. happened? It was a complete shock. So so we get this file that's humongous. Um, and so we start downloading it because we don't know what it is. It's just a file, you know, download like a share file that says here's some information. And it's from um, Renault's firm. So seems legit. And and we're like, well, this is more than our server. And our server is big. You know, I'm like, this, this is a a crazy amount of data. So we sort of start going through it and we're like, I don't think he meant to send this to us. I think he was meaning, I think he was meaning just to send this link to some Connecticut lawyers. And just pause uh, in the there for a cases. second, just as a, as a question of law is what, what's the legal sort of standard here? Like, are you allowed, if they yeah. send it by accident, are you allowed to just take it or does it, is there something like, so it, it depends. Yeah. The, the, and the rule's pretty clear. So what happens is once we tell them, 
or they figure out on their own that they produce information that they didn't mean to, they have 10 days to tell us if any of that information is privileged. If it's an attorney-client privilege or we have some other privileges, but if it's a privileged piece of information and if they say that, you know, it is, and this is a privilege, we have to give it back immediately and we can't argue about it. We could argue with the judge later on. But in terms of information that's just, they didn't mean to give us, you know, if it's not privileged and they didn't mean to give us, it's tough, right? There's no, we don't have any responsibility to return it unless it's privileged or confidential. So just like, you know, text messages between Alex Jones and, and other folks, we have no responsibility or, or duty to give that back. So you have a ten, the clock was ticking for ten days, if I understand correctly, from when you got this. Clock was, yeah. So we got it the week before trial. I can't remember the exact date. I think it was the Tuesday before trial, and and we notified them that day that you produced this, and I don't I don't think we were supposed to get it. So the clock started ticking, and yeah. So we 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 let them know, and and they didn't do anything about it. And you're like, okay, these are ours now, and we can use them at trial. Oh yeah. What's that like? Yeah, day eleven in the office. So that was good, right? Yeah, no we shit. <laughs> well, because we, you know, we we had these. I mean, look, we had him testifying that I don't have text messages about Sandy Hook. We have him testifying I don't use email and have it in a decade. And we're looking at both of these things right here. We're like, this is crazy. He's about to take the stand. He has no idea that we have this. I don't think his lawyer knew exactly what was in there because it was such a massive amount of data. I don't think his lawyer had any doubt. I mean, I, I think he was, I think his lawyer was reading it for the first time with Jones on the stand. I mean, and, and, and people, just like, people oh, man. listening to this who are not lawyers and have never done trial practice. I mean, if you watch movies, you think that this happens all the time, right? That there's this, <laughs> right. that it's always right. surprise. It's always, uh, what's the thing from Rainmaker? Section U. It's always, would you please turn to Section U? That doesn't happen. Like a trial is everybody is agreed on what we can use ahead of time. It's extremely rare that you're able to surprise a witness on the stand. Yeah, never. And then we get to do it all the time in this case because he's making content on his shows <laughs> that we're using clips of. We have text messages that he doesn't know we have. This never, ever, ever happens. There was the writer for Law and Order was tweeting during the trial. And he said something along the lines of, if I would have come in on a Friday and one of my writers would have written this, I would have immediately fired him, sent everybody home, and just hoped Monday was a better day because that doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, so wait. So you win a pretty big judgment, uh, and he, as part of this trial, we learn a little bit about his finances, right? Which I yeah. think the headline is it's extremely profitable to lie in America today. And so, but he's now declared bankruptcy. So are, is there, you know, using Rainmaker as an example, Jason, I think that's what happened at the end of that movie. It's, he, is like, he is great benefit. Yeah, you are Rudy yeah, Baylor. Great, I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. insane. I guess I'm Danny DeVito, a lawyer who's never no, no, taken the just, bar. No, no, we're just the guys uh, who, who interviewed Rudy never taken the bar. afterward yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who don't appear in the film. We're just like... <laughs> but uh, Kyle, what happens now? Like he's clearly, my sense is, you may know more, that he's not actually technically he might be technically bankrupt in the legal sense of what he filed but this guy has money he's got bodyguards coming to the courtroom somebody's paying all these people. sure yeah so it's interesting so to be clear alex jones hasn't filed bankruptcy yet uh free speech systems filed bankruptcy which is the company that owns infowars basically i mean that's his real company he's got the other sort of shell companies out there but um free speech is is his major company so where we go right now is is a bit unclear. I, I think that our appeal is going to get sucked up into the bankruptcy. That's my guess. There's money there, right? So, you know, the, the award that we that we got was against both Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems together. So joint and several liability, they're both responsible for for all of it or some of it, however they want to split it up. And Alex Jones hasn't filed bankruptcy yet. We we know from testimony and from some documents that we got that he pulled out about $62 million from free speech systems last year alone, and then $18 million the years a couple years before that. So there, there's money to find, and we're on the trail. That's the stuff that everybody dreams about. I mean, just to put a villain yeah. up there and just get him. I mean, <laughs> and just like, and the fact that it the family's got to see it. You know, that it, I mean, right. whether they're in the room or not, that they get like that's the catharsis of that. I mean, I've at a way, 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 way lower scale, you know, I, I had some cases against con artists. And just when I got the video deposition where I was able to confront the person who defrauded my clients, 
you know, in a couple of those cases, we never even got a judgment, never got a settlement. It didn't make it that far. The settlement was so small, but they were so happy just to have the video. Well, the one the one thing that was so cathartic on this one was w- when Scarlett testified. She started just before lunch and went maybe twenty or thirty minutes. Took we went to lunch. She came back and and Alex Jones had come back and she was just facing Alex Jones and she she just dressed him down like a wayward child, not mad, not angry, just utterly disappointed. And and it went on for like twenty minutes of her just talking to Alex. She wasn't answering questions and nobody was stopping it. So we damn sure weren't going to. And she just got to look at him in the in the eye and just tell him what he did was wrong and how it hurt her and that Jesse was real and she's real. And just this, it was like everybody had goosebumps. Most people behind me, I could hear almost everybody sniffling because they were clearly tearing up. It was so cathartic for her. And I watched her be different after that. I mean, I, I would just, just her walking around, she clearly healed a lot from just being able to meet him like that. It was um, It was really cool and powerful to watch. Kyle, great work out there. Congratulations on the verdict, and I know you've got a lot of work to go. If you're interested in leaving us a voicemail, letting us know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what you'd like to hear us talk about, it is 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. You can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. That's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. As an aside, uh, if you're in Kansas City and you got some time during the day over the next few days, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, possibly Sunday, the Kansas City Hustlers are going to be playing in the NLBM Classic, uh, which is the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum Classic. You can go to nlbmclassic.com. Uh, it's like a national tournament. You know, if you want to see some old guys play baseball on really cool fields uh, and support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, come on out. The schedule's on there. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agben Nile. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Ravi with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.